You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So this morning we will continue our study in the book of Psalms, which we picked up again last week, and it's become something of a tradition in the life of Connection Church that we take a few weeks out of the summer to study the Psalms, the hymn book of the Bible, the collection of poems in the middle of the Bible. We have many reasons why we want the Psalms to be for us what we would call the songs of our summer like a song that gets stuck in your head. You just keep it on repeat over and over again. It keeps coming back to you in in the quiet moments of your day. Pardon. A song of this summer that just keeps coming back to you. You can't get it out of your head. We have many reasons why we want this to be the case for the Psalms. More reasons even than we have time to go into together this morning. But for the purpose of understanding what it is we hope to accomplish by studying the Psalms, I'll give you just a few reasons. And the first is that Psalms teach, they teach in a way that only art, music, and poetry can. See, all of the Bible teaches, it teaches us about who God is, His character and His nature. And all of the Bible teaches us about what God has done, His acts of salvation, His acts of deliverance, His acts of of redemption. The entire story of the Bible is just that. It is God's plan for the redemption of his people. And we can even see in the Bible how before the foundations of the world were laid, God was working to call to himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to the praise of his glorious grace. So the entire Bible teaches us who God is and what God does. But the Psalms do so in a way that only art, music, and poetry can. Because the Psalms were themselves They are themselves works of art, and many of them were set to music, and they are poetry. They communicate these truths about who God is and what he has done in an intensely personal way. They capture the heart and the mind, and they inform both. They bring the heart and the mind together and inform both about who God is and what he has done. They tell us about the character and the actions, the nature and the acts of deliverance and redemption of the one true God. And they do this because they're poetry, because they use imagery and repetition and rhetoric. They do it in a way that is intensely personal. Your feelings of a work of art are very personal to you. Your feelings about any song are very personal to you. Art is a very personal experience, and you see a lot of personal language in the Psalms. And so it is that many Christians have even made certain Psalms their own. Ask any Christian who studied the Psalms for any period of time. You say, what's your favorite Psalm? And they'll say, oh, it's this Psalm. As a matter of fact, this is my Psalm. This is mine. It belongs to me. They've simply adopted them. And they go back to them over and over again amidst all of life's joys and sorrows. Like a good book or a good movie or song. They never get old, but they just grow richer and deeper and get better and better with time. They become captivating. So that's another reason why we study the Psalms, so that we would be captivated by God's glory, His mercy, His majesty, that we would be captivated by His salvation, by His deliverance and His redemption. Captivated by this salvation that comes from the one true God. And our hope is that just like a song that gets stuck in our heads, we would call these truths to mind over and over and over again. 
in every circumstance. Because the Psalms deal with the heart and with emotion, they teach God's people how to cry out to Him from every circumstance and from every emotional state of being. Psalms are the words from the heart spoken to the heart of God. And because the Psalms are the Word of God, He's given us His Word and the Psalms are in His Word, they are even then songs from God's heart to the hearts of His people. And what a grace it is that God has given to us a language to use and a theology to see our emotions and our circumstances the way that He sees them. We are ter- because, as we saw last week, in the disposition of our sin, in the disposition of our sin, we are so turned inward upon ourselves that we would claim every victory, every good thing for ourselves, and praise ourselves and tell ourselves that we deserve the glory, that we have earned every good thing coming to us, and that not only do we not need God, that not, not only do we not need God's help, we don't even need God. The Psalms tell us, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And when life is bad, when we're running scared, when we're sad or mad or lonely or suffering, our sinfulness and our selfishness and the lies, yes, the lies of Satan himself would tell us that God doesn't care, that he doesn't see, that he's not really good. After all, that was even the the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve. God's holding out on you. He's not really good. But the Psalms tell us even in the worst suffering, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, God, you are with me. The Psalms demonstrate that from any emotional state of being and in every circumstance, God is near. God is working. And God invites you to bring Him your cares and your sorrows, your joys and your sorrows, your greatest victories and your most crushing defeats. He invites you to cast your cares upon Him and lay your burdens down at His feet. After all, that's what Jesus did. And so the Psalms ultimately... And most perhaps importantly, the Psalms bring us to Jesus, who often quoted the Psalms, who fulfilled the prophecies that we find in the Psalms. Many of the Psalms include a prophecy of some messianic king, some messianic figure who would come and save his people. Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies, and he embodied in many ways the experiences, the emotions, and the circumstances of many of these Psalms. So the Psalms are about Jesus. And that's reason enough to study them, to meditate on them, and to allow them to permeate our thoughts and our memories so much that we come back to them over and over again. There is gold to be mined in the Scripture. So let's dig in and let's read from Psalm 118. You can turn in your Bibles. You may find a Bible that is in the tray underneath the chair that is in front of you. Turn in your Bibles. Look for the middle of the Bible. Look for the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm 118. If you'll bear with me, I understand there are roughly 30,000 verses in the entirety of the Bible. And I also understand that there weren't, the verses weren't there when the words themselves were written. But we've used verses to make it easier for us to find our way through the Bible. And there are roughly 30,000 some odd verses in the Bible. In the middle two of those 30,000 verses belong to Psalm 118. So if you look for the middle of the Bible, you're going to be close. Let's read Psalm 118 together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. This is God's word. Let us go to Him in prayer that our eyes would be open to see the beauty of His goodness, His steadfast love and mercy. Father, we come before You weak and helpless. We come before You poor and needy. You have lifted us out of our distress and You have placed our feet on the rock. You have made a way to come before you by giving us your Son. 
thank you, Father, for this amazing love. Thank you for your steadfast love. Open our eyes, we pray, to see Jesus. Let your Holy Spirit transform our hearts and captivate us, we pray, by your goodness. We love you because you loved us first. So it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 118 is a story. To summarize what it is we have just read together is to see that the psalm is a story of some national hero, someone like King David, a person of great prominence from God's people, the people of Israel, who we can read in verse 5 says, Out of my distress I called to the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. So this psalm is a psalm of deliverance, but because it is God's deliverance, it is a deliverance that is accomplished by the most unthinkable, unimaginable, most surprising means, the most amazing, most miraculous kind of deliverance, because that's God's deliverance. The kind of deliverance that no one saw coming, the kind of deliverance that no one sees coming. The kind of deliverance that by the world's wisdom makes no sense. That kind of deliverance. And so it is that the main idea that we will keep in mind together this morning as we study this psalm is that God's people are always delivered from bondage by the most unthinkable means. And because this psalm brings us face to face with Jesus, we will see that Jesus did more than simply quote it, which he did, but he did more than that. He embodied it. After all, he became for us the stone that the builders rejected, who is now the cornerstone and the rock of our salvation. So this psalm is our story. Yes, it's David's story. It's the story of this national hero. Yes, it's the story of Israel. We're going to see that in a moment. But this is our story because this was Jesus' story. Now to unpack all that is within this psalm, I want to examine its structure and its significance in the history of God's people. Scholars tell us that Psalms 113 to 118 are what are called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Now I wouldn't expect you to know that or to make a big deal out of it, but I say that to provide some helpful context to understand the significance of this psalm in the history of God's people. Because God's people, the Israelites, would sing or chant or use this psalm in some liturgical way. They would use it as an order of worship to celebrate God's deliverance from their former slavery in Egypt. That's why it's called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, from Egypt, and then Hallel, the first part of the Hebrew word, Hallelujah. Going back, they would, Israel would sing this, this psalm. They would do this when they celebrated the festival of the Passover, which was the pivotal event, the turning point, the pivotal event, and what secured for Israel their deliverance from their bondage in Egypt. You see, if you'll bear with me, going back all the way to the end of Genesis and the early part of Exodus, the people of Israel had moved out to Egypt and there had become enslaved. They were just this tiny little nation hanging out in the shadow of the vast Egyptian empire. So they had to do what the Egyptians said. Their Egyptians, the Egyptians were their slave masters, reporting each one of them up to the heavy hand of the cruel Pharaoh. And so to deliver his people from their slavery, to make Pharaoh let God's people go, God inflicted plagues on the Egyptians. Ten plagues. And each plague was a direct attack and a direct mockery of the false gods of the Egyptians. Each plague 
demonstrated to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, and to the people of Israel that he was the one true God, the God who is as opposed to the God who is not. Nine times God inflicted a plague on Egypt, and each time Pharaoh would come to Moses, the leader of God's people, and say, make this plague stop, make it stop, and I will let your people go. But after God made each plague stop, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not let them go. This happened nine times until finally God sent a direct attack at the God-King Pharaoh himself. He levied an attack at Pharaoh himself by attacking him and his household personally, by striking down the firstborn son of every Egyptian household. Every household, in fact, that did not have above, beneath, and on either side of its door the shed and spread blood of a spotless lamb. You can see this in Exodus 12. God gave instruction to Moses, and Moses told the people, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb, the spotless lamb. And they would kill this lamb, and its blood would run in a trench that ran underneath their doorstep. And Moses says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel, the top part, and the two doorposts either side of the blood, with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And then Moses institutes the Passover. He says, you shall observe this rite, so this will be a ritual, as a statute, so it will become codified law for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. So you, the people of Israel, you will keep doing this even when you get to where you're going. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For when he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck down, when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses... So Psalm 118 was used in this service of remembrance, this Passover service. And we can see by its structure, the individual and the communal language that is in this psalm, that it was meant to be recited, that it was meant to be used in a service of remembrance for God's people, for his his deliverance. Verses 1 through 4 make up the prologue in which the community gathers together, just like we've done, we've gathered together, and they prepare themselves for worship. They begin by reciting what was their national anthem, essentially their national anthem that they are to give thanks to the Lord for he is good, that his steadfast love endures forever. And verses 2 through 4 show the community gathering together, doing just that, and calling to one another to raise up this anthem. You can see it says, let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, let those who fear the Lord say that the steadfast love endures forever. It's almost like the psalmist is saying from the left of the room to the front of the room, from the front and from the back, let's everybody say it all together. And from there, verses 5 through 18, we recount the story of God's deliverance. That verses 5 through 18 is the story of God's deliverance through distress. As we saw earlier, this psalm is the story of God's deliverance from bondage which would have been all the more poignant and meaningful while Israel gathered to celebrate and commemorate the Passover. And verses 19 through 27 make up the heart of this psalm, in which the community rejoices for God's deliverance, blesses God, and blesses one another. 
Finally, verses 28 through 29 are the epilogue in which the people individually, going back to their houses, recount the opening praise and claim the goodness of God and His steadfast love for themselves personally. So inasmuch as Psalm 118 was used in a service of remembrance for God's miraculous deliverance, I want to walk through this psalm so we ourselves can be reminded of our story and instructed how we are to remember that God delivers His people from bondage by the most unthinkable means. So verses 1-4 through tell us of God's steadfast love. It says, remember God's steadfast love. And the key word there is steadfast. Which means it is a determined, God's love is a determined, resolute, and unwavering kind of love. It is a love that endures forever. A love that endures even through hardship and betrayal. It withstands even the most difficult of circumstances. It stands fast. It doesn't turn away. Steadfast love is working love. It is love that is in motion. It is love that is in action. It is love that moves outward. And it's the kind of love that has become the theme for some of our most enduring stories. It has become the theme of so many popular works of literature or film. We love these stories. One modern story that picks up this theme of steadfast love, love that withstands hardship or difficulty, is a novel and book called The Notebook. Now for some of you, you may have never seen The Notebook. And for others of you, particularly men in the room, you may have this belief that The Notebook is exclusively a story for women. Now I don't know if that's true. I don't happen to believe that that's true. I think it's a story for anyone. But I should also say that it's been a long time since I've seen the film, so I can't condone it. I'm not encouraging you to watch it. But I'm bringing it up because it is one way that demonstrates how our culture loves and praises and finds admirable the story of steadfast love. It's a story about a star-crossed couple, like a couple who's not meant to be together, kind of like Romeo and Juliet whose love endures years and years of hardship. But through it all, they beat the odds of their unlikely pairing, and they even endure a truly tragic breakdown in communication. Now, I won't spoil the plot entirely, but their relation suffers immensely from this awful breakdown in communication. But then, communication is restored, and they go on to join together in many, many years of happiness. But it's not all happily ever after, because as the years go by, the woman, she begins to decline into dementia and Alzheimer's. She begins to lose her memory. So they together write down their story so that each day the woman can be reminded of his love for her and her love for him. It's a good story. It's a story that tugs at the heartstrings. And it does so because steadfast love, love that endures hardship, is beautiful and it is praiseworthy. We want this kind of love. We see this kind of love as something that we would desire and hope for. But if the notebook is completely unfamiliar, or if it's simply too feminine or outdated for you, then I would refer you to the greatest story ever told, the story told by Jesus in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. It's a story we almost all of us know. Jesus tells this story about a man who had two sons, and the younger son asked for his inheritance up front. Essentially, he went to his father and said, Dad, I just wish you were dead already so that I could have my share of my stuff, my share of your stuff. And the, son, and the father, at great expense to himself, dishonored though he was by this wicked and terrible and sinful rebellion, gives his son the inheritance. And the younger son goes away and wastes all of his money, and finds himself completely poor and hungry. So he comes up with a plan to return to his father, not as a son, but as a hired servant, kind of like a slave. 
just so he wouldn't die of hunger or homelessness. Despite his sinful rebellion, this is his plan, then Jesus delivers the plot twist. He says in Luke chapter 15, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. So his father, this father who had been dishonored, is looking at the horizon and looks out and sees this son coming and he felt compassion. And he ran. The father brings dishonor then upon himself. He gathers up his robe, ties it at his waist and runs and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's getting ready to make an excuse here. He's getting ready to offer his plan to just be like a slave, just be like a hired servant. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the steadfast love of God the Father. And this kind of love, love that endures betrayal, hardship, love that endures wickedness and dishonor, this is the kind of love that the Father has lavished on His people at great expense to Himself. And while it is that we could praise the Lord for any of His attributes, his holiness, his glory, or his majesty. It has been the theme of God's people throughout history to praise him for his steadfast love. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we would find it difficult to praise God until we see that it is mercy that we have been given compared to the judgment that we deserve. Our story is Israel's story a story of rebellion, a story of enslavery, a story of bondage, but in our case, a story of bondage and enslavement to sin. But God has made a way to deliver his people from their slavery, and it's the most unthinkable deliverance we could ever imagine. The Lord himself has become the salvation of his people. Verse 14 says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. In verses 19 through 20, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. How is it that we, we who are the unrighteous, can enter through the gates of righteousness? How can we enter through into the holy presence of God unless we are given a righteousness that is not our own? Unless we are given the very righteousness of Jesus? Unless Jesus himself takes our unrighteousness and nails it to the cross and buries it with him in the grave? Jesus was the stone who was rejected, but for the salvation of God's people has become the cornerstone, the foundation, the rock of our salvation. And so it is by this amazing grace that through faith in Jesus, our status changes from slave to son. Do you want to remain a slave or do you want to be a son? You may think that you are free or that rebellion equals freedom, but try telling that to your cravings. Try telling that to your addictions. Try telling that to your constant need for the approval of others, your need for your career 
or your spouse or your lack of a career or your lack of a spouse to define you, to give you identity and meaning? Do you want to remain a slave or do you want to be a son? Some translations say that in verses 2 through 4, let Israel now say, let the house of Aaron now say, let those who fear the Lord now say, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The time is always now. The time is always now. If you've never before placed your hope in the righteousness of Jesus, if you've never before forsaken yourself of your own self-righteousness to build your life on Christ the cornerstone, the time is now. Remember the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 118 tells us also to remember God's supremacy. Verses 8 and 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. There is no salvation like God's salvation. Jesus is a more perfect and complete Savior than anything this world could ever offer. And the psalmist uses this language of taking refuge, dwelling secure in God, sheltering in God compared to trusting, hoping in men. Even the strongest of men, the most noble of men, hoping in princes. Because we can either build our lives, we can either stake our hopes on Christ the cornerstone, or we can build our lives on sinking sand, hoping in men, hoping in the things of this world to provide for us that which only Christ can satisfy. Take inventory of your longings. See, we long for beautiful homes, but even if we get them, there will always be a more beautiful home. So really, our longing for a beautiful home is the longing for an eternal home. A home that is beautiful because it is filled with the never-ending radiance and splendor of God Himself. We long for delicious food, and we, we long to share it with our, our closest friends and family, to make memories with our loved ones. But we eat, and then shortly thereafter, we get hungry. And our loved ones leave us. We are, they, they, we are separated by either time or distance or sometimes even death. So really, our longing is to never hunger or thirst again and to experience a permanent, eternal, lasting community, an eternal family. Look around. This gathered community is just a foretaste of the permanent, eternal community, a new family with whom we will celebrate a never-ending feast with our Savior, Defender, Redeemer, and friend Jesus, our true older brother who sought us out and bought us and redeemed us from slavery by his own blood. We long for a significant other a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse, but we find that the effects of sin and our selfishness keep us distant from one another. They keep us at odds against one another. They keep us from having what it is that we truly want to be fully known and fully loved the way that we are known and loved by Jesus. He knows every sin that we have ever committed and every sin that we will ever commit, but still calls us his own we will find that placing our hopes and desires in anything other than God will destroy that person or that thing and leave ourselves miserable. No person, no thing can bear the weight of your deepest longings or desires. Only Christ can do that. God is our refuge. God is our shelter and Christ is the cornerstone, the headstone of the corner, the most important stone in the foundation on which we would build our lives. Remember God's supremacy.
Remember also God's providence. We see in verses 5 through 18, it describes the distress that was first referenced in verse 5. And one instance of this distress, which we saw earlier, was the history of God's people and their enslavement, their bondage and captivity in Egypt. But the psalmist in verse 18 sees this distress. He looks back on this distress with the eyes of faith. He says, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. The goal of discipline is instruction. It's to teach. It's a way of teaching. And so the psalmist is picking up on a theme that we see over and over again throughout the course of redemption, throughout the history of redemption, that God uses or allows suffering to refine his people and to accomplish his divine sovereign purposes. He uses suffering to purge his people of their sin, to break them of their self-reliance, to take their idols out of their hands and bring them to a fuller and deeper trust in Him. The psalmist wants, us, wants to remind his people that we can trust God, that the suffering that He allows us to endure is meant to refine us and to show us something marvelous. God wants to show us something marvelous when we rely on Him, something unthinkable, something unimaginable. God isn't absent in times of suffering. He's a loving father, so he doesn't gleefully inflict suffering upon his people. But he's sovereign, so he allows it. He permits it, and he uses it as part of his will to make us more like Jesus. More like Jesus, who himself endured all of the suffering found in this psalm. But if it seems cruel to you that God would allow suffering, or that he would use it, that he would permit it in the lives of his people, Can you imagine just for a moment how cruel it would be for God to actually leave His people in the bondage of their sin, to never allow the circumstances of the lives of His people to bring them to an awareness of their need for Him? How cruel it would be for God to allow His people to build on any other foundation other than Christ. If all other ground is sinking sand, how cruel would it be for God to allow us to build our lives or stake our hopes on anything other than Christ? So suffering is meant to refine us, and it serves a purpose in God's sovereign plan to rid us of our idols, to rid us of any self-righteousness, and to hope in Christ alone, who is our righteousness. God is very near amid suffering. He's using it. He doesn't abandon his people within it. He says in Isaiah 41, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You see there the right hand of the Lord, which we can see in verse 15, does valiantly. God says again in Isaiah 43, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. We can trust that the suffering God allows us to endure is meant to refine us, as hard as that is to accept or understand. But because Jesus endured all of the suffering that is found within this psalm, We have then with Him a kinship that is deeper than our closest relative. So wonderful it is that we have in Jesus a perfect Savior who experienced all of the bitter griefs of humanity so that He could redeem our humanity, so that He could truly die 
He truly died so that He could take away from us death and instead give us life. Verse 17, verse 17, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. That is accomplished by Jesus taking our death. As Jesus said in John 11 to His friend Martha, who was mourning the loss of her brother Lazarus, He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Verse 17. It is God's providence to use every circumstance of our lives to lead us to him, even suffering. He's not absent. He sees, He hears, and He is working. Remember God's providence. Remember also God's methods because God's people are always delivered by the most unthinkable means. And that brings us to verse 22 of this psalm, which is for us a code 5 gospel alarm. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. This rejection of this stone that has now become the cornerstone, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. No one else could have accomplished this deliverance. This is a deliverance unlike any other. And what, when was this deliverance accomplished? What was this deliverance? Well, how was it accomplished? It was finished upon that cross. This is the day that the Lord has made. Verse 24, let us rejoice and be glad in it. The day of the cross is the day that the Lord has made. And the day of the empty tomb. And for us, every day from that day forward is the day of the cross and the day of the empty tomb. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us never get over it. Let us look to it for our salvation. Let us never look for our deliverance anywhere else than the empty cross and the empty grave. Peter, it seemed, could never get over this. He could never get over this verse. He quoted it when he was questioned by the council after healing a lame beggar. Acts chapter 4, verse 10, if you want to turn there briefly. Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Peter healed a lame beggar, and the the scribes and the Pharisees, the council of God's people, brings Peter before them, and and they say, "By, by what power, how did you accomplish this healing? How did you perform this healing? And and Peter replied, Let it be known to you and all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you, the leaders of Israel, you, the the scribes and the Pharisees, you, the builders, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, by him, this man is standing, this lame beggar is standing before you well. Then Jesus, he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name in heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter couldn't get over it. He quoted it again in his first letter to the church, 1 Peter, when he tells the church to live a life of obedience built on the word, built on the perfect obedience of Christ. He says essentially, let Christ be the cornerstone of your obedience because they hated Jesus. So they rejected him. And so it has been throughout the ages that countless of the leaders of God's people have looked to preach any other message, some other message other than the gospel. 
They have looked to preach any other message than our utter need for Christ, his perfect obedience, his atoning sacrifice, and our complete and utter dependence, our need for both to enter through the gates of the Lord. Let it never be said of Connection Church that we ever got over the gospel, that we ever got over the best news ever. Remember God's methods and remember your constant need. We look briefly to verse, 40, to verse 25. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Remember your constant need for salvation. Remember your constant need for the gospel. And today, if you have never before asked the Lord to save you, ask him to save you in a way that only he can. If you've already received the salvation of the Lord, remember your constant need yet again and pray for the success of the truth of the gospel in your heart to transform every part of your heart, to transform your life by its power. Ask the Lord to save those, save others who until now have rejected the stone. They don't see their need. The salvation of the Lord isn't yet marvelous in their eyes. Ask the Lord that he would make you an instrument of his salvation in the lives of the people that have not yet made Christ their cornerstone. Remember your constant need for deliverance from the bondage of sin and bind yourself to Jesus. As Jesus himself was the festal sacrifice, was this festal sacrifice we see in this psalm, bind yourself to him and thank God that he has bound himself to you. You, personally. Remember God's love for you. In verses 28 and 29, the people leave their time of gathered worship. And just like we leave a concert or a movie or even leave our time of gathered worship here together this morning, we find ourselves humming or singing one of the songs that sticks in our mind. It sticks with us. It becomes personal. We see this happening in verse 28 when the people claim God's deliverance for themselves individually. They say, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. It's personal. God's love for you. Verse 29 repeats the opening line of this psalm. It comes full circle. It becomes like a never-ending song, which is fitting because we say, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Remember God's love for you. Never get over it. Be reminded of it every chance you get. I mentioned earlier that I don't believe Peter ever really got over verse 22 in Psalm 118. And I don't have any other reason to believe this than what I already shared with you, that he quoted it multiple times. So other than that, it's just what I've come to believe. But the gospel writers give us the account of when Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper by taking the unleavened bread of the Passover, by breaking it and saying, this is my body broken for you. And of the wine, he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And after celebrating this meal, this tangible experience of the gospel, the gospel writers say that Jesus and his disciples rose and sang a hymn. What hymn did they sing? 
Psalm 118. And so over the course of the next three days, Peter saw before his very eyes the stone rejected. But the builders didn't know that when they laid Jesus' body in the tomb, they were laying the cornerstone of the church's one foundation. And this unthinkable deliverance never stopped being marvelous in Peter's eyes. May it never stop being marvelous in our eyes. And may we never stop singing of the steadfast love that endures forever. May we never stop singing of this deliverance that is unlike any other. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your deliverance. We thank you for the ways that you work the ways that you alone can save. We thank you that Jesus is our righteousness. We thank you that he lived the perfect life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve, that he did this in our place. God, we thank you for this glorious message of the gospel. We thank you that we can be reminded of it by your word. Continue to transform our hearts. Save us, we pray. Let the truth of this gospel continue to dive deeper and deeper of our hearts and change us to make us more like Jesus. Bring us to an awareness of him. Help us to tell of his, this good news of the gospel to those who need it, those who to this point have not yet made Jesus the, their cornerstone. Give us success, we pray, O oh Lord. We praise you together and sing of your steadfast love, which endures forever. Hallelujah, in Jesus' name, amen.